This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. Perpetrators of rape are often serial criminals. Out of every 1,000 suspected rape perpetrators referred to prosecutors, 370 have at least one prior felony conviction, including 100 who have five or more. 520 will be released, either because they posted bail or for other reasons while awaiting trial. 70 of the released perpetrators will be arrested for committing another crime before their case is decided. On June 22, 1980, a 14-year-old girl was kidnapped from her sister's home while babysitting her nieces. Just five days later, her body was found in a nearby river, and her missing person's case became a homicide. With little to go on, the case went cold, until her killer was finally arrested in 2017, thanks to DNA profiling. This is the story of Suzanne Bombardier. Suzanne Arlene Bombardier, who went by Susie, was born on March 14, 1966, and grew up in Antioch, California. I couldn't find her mother's name, but her father's name was Ted, and her sister's name was Stephanie. Her parents were divorced, and Suzanne lived with her mother and stepfather. She was described as a dependable, well-mannered, kind, and studious young woman who worked hard in school to achieve straight A's and was a member of the California Junior Scholastic Federation. She adored her two young nieces, aged five and six at the time of her murder, and was always willing to help out her sister when she could. On the evening of June 21, 1980, Stephanie asked Suzanne to watch the girls so she could go out to a co-worker's birthday party. She was at work already and asked Suzanne to come bring her some clothing to the restaurant she worked so that she could leave right after her shift. Suzanne did and left the clothes with a co-worker, but Stephanie saw her through the window and the two waved at each other before Suzanne went back to Stephanie's apartment to spend the evening with her nieces. She let the girls stay up a bit later as a treat and after putting them to bed, she spoke to her friend on the phone getting off at about 1.30 a.m., saying she was tired and was going to bed. The girls confirmed she was wearing a nightgown and a bathrobe when they last saw her, and it was customary that she would spend the night when babysitting late. I also read that Suzanne had brought her sewing kit that night to make outfits for her niece's Barbie dolls, which just shows the thoughtful and caring nature of Suzanne and how much she loved her family. Stephanie arrived home at around 4 a.m. on June 22, 1980, and didn't see any sign of Suzanne, which was strange as she often slept on the couch when staying over, 
but she just assumed she'd fallen asleep in the girls' room, and so she went off to bed herself. In the morning, Stephanie woke and began making breakfast for everyone. After a call from her mother asking when Suzanne would be home, she asked the children to wake Suzanne, but they stated she had not spent the night in their room. Concerned, Stephanie searched the apartment, but 14-year-old Suzanne Bombardier was nowhere to be found. Police were called and an investigation began. Her overnight bag and shoes were at the scene, and it was ruled out that she had willingly left to go out with a friend or to a party, as it was very out of character for the responsible Suzanne. Her father was adamant she knew the person responsible, as there was no sign of forced entry, and no neighbors reported any disturbances or seeing anything unusual. They suspected foul play of some sort, and it was believed that she had been kidnapped, although the police didn't have much to go on. A search began to find Suzanne, but sadly, just five days later, on June 27, 1980, her nude body was found in the San Joaquin River near the Antioch Bridge, 97 kilometers or 60 miles from Stephanie's apartment where she was last seen. Her body had been in the water a few days, but remarkably, DNA was found on her body, and while testing wasn't very advanced at the time and didn't produce any leads, it was secured and stored away for future use. Suzanne had been raped and was stabbed in her chest puncturing her heart, which was determined to be her cause of death. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. I've recently noticed an increase in listeners, and I just really wanted to say thank you for listening, and please keep sharing these stories, and let's keep these conversations going. This month marks one year that I have consistently posted two episodes a month on this podcast. As the first year, I was a little bit slacking in the amount of episodes I got out. I've really been putting a lot of effort into this and it just makes me really happy that you're listening and that you enjoy these stories and what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope we can continue to shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is a 100% woman-run operation. I write, record, and edit every single episode myself. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, I have recently brought on someone to help with research on some upcoming episodes to help me out and to help continue to share these important stories. So to help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app, and I'll leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I'll be donating to for the month of March 2022 is Women Abuse Council of Toronto. Quote, Women Act works collaboratively to eradicate violence against women through community mobilization, coordination, research, policy, and education. End quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. 
And please don't forget to share with your friends and families because word of mouth is the best review of all. I'm not sure exactly where her sister Stephanie was living at the time. In my research, it refers to Suzanne by stating Antioch teen, but then I found a reference to her sister living in San Francisco, which is about 72 kilometers or 45 miles from Antioch and about roughly 50 minutes away at that time of night. I felt like that was a bit of a distance to regularly travel to babysit and visit family, but I'm obviously not from that area and it may be very reasonable for that location. But to give you some context, Antioch is the second largest city in Contra County with a population of 115,291 as of 2020 and is located in the East Bay region of the San Francisco Bay Area. So again, it could be that in the articles they refer to Stephanie's apartment as San Francisco because it's technically part of the larger Bay Area, but she also could have been living in the actual city. Upon researching the location of Suzanne's body and where it was found, it appears the bridge nearby was only 20 kilometers or 13 miles from Antioch, while San Francisco is shown at 90 kilometers or 56 miles, making it likely Stephanie did live in the city of San Francisco. But that's just what I could find. So if you know more information or want to correct anything I'm saying, please let me know on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast. I've started getting comments on some recent episodes that give more insight or are adding some missed details and I welcome that. My goal is always to be as accurate as possible, so definitely don't hesitate to let me know. I also find it amazing that any DNA was preserved on her body. You often hear of bodies in water losing all evidence, especially after multiple days. Without that DNA, her killer would have never been caught, so it is incredible that it was preserved and that the investigators saved that DNA so well for all those years. This cold case DNA profiling isn't new, and many cases are being solved, such as episode 5 where I covered the story of Christine Jessup, and her killer was uncovered after 36 years. But it's still amazing that it happens, and that the killer's DNA lasts all those years and isn't damaged or deteriorated, and that they can find a match that they even test the DNA as there are so many cold cases that haven't even had this opportunity. And it's quite lucky that all the pieces came together to catch her murderer. After Suzanne's body was identified, her body was laid to rest on July 1st, 1980 at Queen of Heaven Cemetery in Lafayette, California, which is about halfway between San Francisco and Antioch. Her gravestone has her picture on the left corner, and while reports state it was etched with the words, You're in my heart, from her favorite song, pictures don't seem to have that part visible. There were few leads to go on in the case, and besides the DNA, which was unable to be properly tested, there was little evidence. It's also stated that just 10 days into the investigation, the police force all came down with the flu, which may or may have not impeded the investigation. Many suspects were considered, and many people were questioned, including a boy named Terry, 
that Suzanne had been dating, apparently, according to her best friend, Lisa. But he was cleared and his alibi checked out. For 34 years, Suzanne's case sat cold, until by chance, a woman named Jennifer Kathleen Gibbons stumbled upon her gravestone. Seeing her image staring back at her, she became curious about the young woman and decided to look up her story. After finding out Suzanne's murder was still unsolved, Jennifer began blogging about it and renewed interest in this all-but-forgotten case. In 2015, the DNA found on Suzanne's body was submitted to the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office Forensic Laboratory to create a DNA profile, and two years later, in 2017, a suspect was identified, and after some further testing, Mitchell Lynn Bacon was conclusively linked to the DNA found. This is where I feel the justice system failed Suzanne. Born in 1954, Mitchell had a history of criminal behavior and spent years in and out of prison. He was actually arrested and sentenced to five years to life in 1973 for rape, robbery, assault, and intent to commit murder. He was released and arrested and sentenced yet again in 1981 to 24 years in prison for rape, sodomy, burglary, and robbery. During the time he was released, he killed Suzanne. Now, I don't know if that was a year or two years that he was out, but his crimes were definitely serious and indicative of his capabilities, and he should not have been released so quickly the first time. I know hindsight is 2020, but it really makes you feel like her death was avoidable. In Mitchell's previous crimes, he actually raped and stabbed another woman in 1973, which was very similar to Suzanne's case. After being released the second time, he moved to Brentwood, California, and the local community was up in arms about it. In response, he stated, quote, I tried to kill her, but my heart wasn't really in it, so she lived. If I do it again, I'd be facing life in prison under the three strikes law. And I have a lot of friends and family who are watching me and making sure I don't slip. I hope and pray that I don't, and the people around me, they keep an eye on me, end quote. He also stated that his neighbors should not fear him because he would never hurt children, adding, quote, Child molesters are different because they hurt kids, and kids can't fight back, end quote. But Mitchell did in fact hurt children. He hurt 14-year-old Suzanne. And the public absolutely had the right to be fearful. As it turns out, Mitchell was an original suspect in Suzanne's case. He had briefly dated her sister Stephanie. According to Stephanie, she was on a date when Mitchell came up and asked her out, completely disregarding her date. She agreed and went on three dates but wasn't feeling a connection and ended things. Mitchell then became obsessive and would hang out at the restaurant Stephanie worked, and he would just sit there and stare at her. He also claimed to have found a home for them to live in together, to which Stephanie ended all contact. Mitchell continued to call her work and leave messages, both there and on her home line, and even showed up at her apartment after a coworker gave him the address 
which, side note, never do that. Never give any personal information, email, phone number, addresses, without permission. You could save a life because many men try that kind of thing. They also ask when so-and-so will be in next. Just say you don't know. Never give out schedules to anyone. Police theorize that Mitchell arrived to the apartment that night to see Stephanie and that she was his original target and that Suzanne was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He did take a polygraph in 1980, which was inconclusive, but he was cleared nonetheless. Again, DNA testing was in its infancy then, and had this happened today, it would not have taken 37 years to ID Suzanne's murderer. Mitchell was arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, murder, and oral copulation. His defense tried to argue other suspects were not adequately investigated, and that while his DNA was undoubtedly there, they insinuated that he only came upon the body after she was murdered and that necrophilia was what occurred. Thankfully, the jury did not buy that defense story, and just this year, on March 15th, 2022, one day after what would have been Suzanne's 56th birthday, Mitchell Lynn Bacon was finally found guilty in the murder of Suzanne Bombardier. He is awaiting sentencing, but faces life without parole, which will more than likely be his sentence. Almost 42 years since her murder, Suzanne and her family have finally seen justice, and now she can truly rest in peace. Thank you for listening to the story of Suzanne Bombardier. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.